which was the language of these ancient nations. Well, here in Daniel chapter 8, we switch back to Hebrew. And that's important to recognize because I think that gives us a clue about this change of focus. Because we're going to see that a lot of details in Daniel chapter 8 are repeating the details of Daniel chapter 7, but they're doing it from a different perspective. You're going to see a Jewish perspective or a Hebrew perspective in Daniel chapter 8. That's why we have animals, of sacrificial animals from the Levitical system being used as images. Whereas in Daniel chapter 7, what you have is a view from more of a Gentile view or a kingly view. For example, Daniel chapter 7, we saw how it dealt with this succession of four kingdoms, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and then Rome. And of course, in the Roman Empire, God's kingdom was given over to the saints and the Son of Man, who both ascend to God's throne in the first century. So Jesus takes his seat on the throne and the kingdom is given to him and the one like the Son of Man is his people ascending in the first century to glory and the kingdom is given over to his saints right on schedule in the time of the Roman Empire. And now we have Daniel chapter 7 rather than a kingly or political focus we have Daniel chapter 8 which switches to a liturgical focus dealing with the church dealing with worship dealing with prayer and sacrifice and we're going to see how those those different perspectives of Daniel chapter 7 and 8 actually complement each other. And this is really an example of apocalyptic recapitulation. So you have Daniel chapter 7 laying all these details out, and you have Daniel 8 expanding on those details and what they mean. And so we'll see a lot of these parallel ideas. These animals actually are parallel between Daniel chapter 7. The wild beasts parallel these domesticated animals, the ram and the goat. And we also see that the little horn of Daniel 7 is the same little horn repeated in Daniel chapter 8 just from a slightly different perspective. So, with that in mind, let's go look at our text in Daniel chapter 8 and I'll stop at various points as we go through this. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa, in the province of Elam, in the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. The context, the historical context here, if you remember the story of Daniel, goes back early in Daniel's ministry before the events of Daniel chapter 5 and the fall of Belshazzar, when Darius the Mede came in and took over Babylon. Remember, that was the handwriting on the wall event. Well, this is, uh, chronologically speaking, this would be actually before Daniel chapter 5 because it says, In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. And it's important to see that Daniel connects this vision with the vision that he had two years earlier in the reign of Belshazzar. Also note that Daniel is not in the city of Babylon. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar had raised Daniel and brought him into Babylon, into the courts to serve as his as minister. Well, in his vision with Belshazzar, Belshazzar had basically demoted Daniel and had left the face of his father Nebuchadnezzar and now Daniel finds himself in a different place. He finds himself out in the east in Elam, which is toward Persia, toward Media, and that is where God gave him the vision. So he is taken to this city, the citadel of Susa, And if you read Esther chapter 1 or Nehemiah, you'll see that this is actually where the Medes and the Persians reigned from. 
uh, plays a very big role in the story of Esther and Nehemiah. And that shows us that God's presence had moved from Babylon to the next aspect of the kingdom with the Medes and Persians. Remember that, that statue in Daniel chapter 2, gold, silver, bronze, and iron? Now we're moving to the silver portion, which was of the Medes and the Persians. And the image here is that the ram is preparing to attack and conquer the city. Now if we read verse 20, I think it's appropriate to read verse 20 at this point, because here we have the explanation of, of these two horn, this two-horned two ram. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia, and the shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes is the first king. So we have here two horns with this ram. One was long and the other grew up later. So we have Media, or the Medes, which Darius was a Mede. And then you have the joining of Media and Persia into one kingdom, which we call Medo-Persia now. And of course Cyrus was Darius's Persian name. So you have this unification of the two kingdoms into one nation. Verse 4, I watched the ram as he charged toward the west and toward the north and the south. No animal could stand against him and none could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. Of course, we know from history that Persia became a great power in the ancient world, took over from Babylon, and actually extended the, the power and authority that Babylon once yielded to even further borders out. Verse 5, As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes, came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. Coming from the west is something new in Israel's history. Because up to this point, Israel was the westernmost nation in their particular realm. The west would be Greece, the islands of Greece and toward the, toward the west. So this goat with this prominent horn between his eyes comes from the west crossing the whole earth that would be the land I think is the better translation crossing the whole land the whole known world without touching the ground in other words this is a speedy conquer a speedy speedy moving in with the goat well if you look back at chapter 7 we've already seen that the interpretation of the goat is Greece right well in chapter 7 verse 6 we see that the animal representing Greece is a fast animal and notice it has wings Verse 6, After that I looked and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. Leopards move quickly, right? That's why that, that, that animal is chosen as a symbol for Greece. And on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. And so we have a matching here with a goat because the goat doesn't touch the ground because it has wings spilling over from Daniel chapter 7. And he conquers the entire world, the known world. He came toward the two-horned ram, verse 6 of chapter 8. I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at him in great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him. The goat knocked him to the ground and trampled on him, and none could rescue the ram from his power. The goat became very great, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Now, this is uh, one of those remarkable things that matches up with history very well. Because if you understand the history between Greece and Persia, Persia actually attacked Greece twice before the coming of Alexander the Great. 
and the Greeks were very concerned about Persia. And the very first thing that Alexander the Great did when he came to power in Greece was go in and destroy Medo-Persia. Okay? And so we have this one horn that comes up and he attacks Persia with great rage. And that's, of course, Alexander the Great, but, but in general that's talking about the nation, the empire of Greece. And yet, the goat became very great. Remember, what, uh, if you know your history about Alexander the Great, he broke down in tears because at the age of 30, or a little bit before 30 actually, in his late 20s, his generals came to him and told him that there were no more lands for him to conquer. He had conquered the entire known world. There were no more enemies to defeat, and he broke down in tears because his job as conqueror, as king, as expanding empire, had been completed. And he, had, he was only in his late 20s. And then Daniel says, But at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off, and in his place four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Alexander the Great died in his prime at the age of 30. And we can actually date that. He died in 323 B.C. after he had conquered the entire world. Some suggest that he may have been poisoned, but he grew very, very sick, and he died at the age of 30. And so what we have here is remarkable historical prophecy in the book of Daniel that came to pass with exact precision. And it's remarkable about that because even those who do not believe that the Bible talks about supernatural things recognize that these things are talking about Persia and Greece. The details are far, far too explicit to deny. And so what people do is they tend to say, if you don't believe that this is really a legitimate supernatural prophecy, is they'll say, well, Daniel had to, this part of Daniel at least, had to have been written after all these things took place. Everybody recognizes that these details match the historical succession of empires from Babylon to Persia to Greece. So it's a remarkable thing. Of course, there's no reason to deny that Daniel wrote this because he received a supernatural vision from the Lord about the succession of these kingdoms. Skipping down to verse 9. Out of one of them came another horn which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. So now we have another little horn. And since we should understand that the the empires are the same as the empires we looked at in Daniel chapter 7, I think we should assume that this is the same little horn viewed at from a different perspective as we saw from Daniel chapter 7. It grew until it reached the host of heavens and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled them. It set itself up to be as great as the prince of the host. It took away the daily sacrifice from him and the place of his sanctuary was brought low. Because of rebellion, the host of the saints and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did and truth was thrown to the ground. Remember back in Daniel chapter 7, I suggested that the little horn of Daniel 7 was the ruler or the leadership of the Jews. And we see this specifically with Herod, specifically with Herod the Great. And if you go back and you study the lineage of Herod the Great, he came from humble background. He rose in Judea to power and to authority by the Romans granting him authority, but also by the Greeks and his fathers were given authority by the Greeks as well. And so you have the little horn raising up as the Herodian kings of Judea specifically, but with them the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the other leaders 
of the Jewish people. And so, what we have with Alexander, Alexander dies in his prime at the age of 30, and his death threw the Greek Empire into chaos for a period of time. And then you have this rising of Herod the Great's family line, going back to Antipater one and Antipater two. if you go back and look at the history, coming from humble origins and rising up to become great in the beautiful land. That's a reference to Judea and Jerusalem. So if we continue with this parallelism, this is where we have the relationship to the Eighth Commandment. For what the Herods did was use their political authority to govern the temple system. They took over the temple system. The Herodian kings picked who would be the high priest every year, so no longer was it an ecclesiastical function. Herod took the ecclesiastical function of the high priest and he subordinated it underneath his political rule and he ended up basically corrupting the high priestly system in Jerusalem in the temple. And Herod the Great, if you remember, Herod the Great completely rebuilt and refurbished the temple in Jerusalem, the great temple that we, took, we see re, read about in the New Testament. And so he thought because he had made that temple structure great that it was his property to do with it as he pleased. And so he used the temple for political ends, corrupting the sacrifices, corrupting the high priest, corrupting the Levitical system that God had put in place and had brought back from Babylon and reinstituted after the Babylonian captivity. And so Herod ends up corrupting the entire system of worship and sacrifice. He made it a showcase of his own majesty. If you know anything about Herod the Great, he liked a great building project because he was most interested in fame. He was most interested in making a name for himself and he did that through his building projects, one of which was the, re- the, the, the sort of ex- expanding of the temple that was rebuilt after Babylon. So he believed that it was his temple and he governed it with his eye to political expediency, wealth, power, and fame. And he brought the system down. He ended up corrupting the high priestly system so that all of these sacrifices became corrupt. Because remember in the law of Moses, there was a specific order for high priestly succession. And so once you have a corrupted high priestly system, the high priest is no longer a legitimate high priest. And so whatever's going on in the temple is, is debauched. It's corrupted. It really is of no effect. And that's what the Herodian kings did, particularly with Herod the Great. And later, Herod Antipas and Herod Agrippa broke the Eighth Commandment as well because they stole God's temple for their own personal use. Verse 10 says, that The little horn grew toward the beautiful land and reached the host of heavens and cast some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens and it threw some of the starry hosts to the earth and trampled on. It set itself up to be as great as the prince of the hosts. If you look at the history, Herod ruthlessly persecuted any of the devout Jews who spoke against the Herodian sacrilegious practices. The starry hosts, if you look at the symbolism all through scripture, you'll see that the starry hosts are God's faithful people, faithful covenant people. And then we see also more fulfillment of this with Herod the Great. Herod the Great tried to kill Jesus when he was born. Remember the wise men from the east came, came from Persia, came to Herod and said, where is this king of the Jews? And Herod recognized that is a threat to my rule because Herod was the king of the Jews. And so Herod 
decrees to kill all the male children in Bethlehem and so he sets himself up against the prince prince being Jesus Christ the Messiah and he tried to kill Jesus later the next Herod Herod Antipas beheaded John the Baptist another great and mighty man another prophet that was killed by the little horn remember that John had told Herod that he was living in sin if you look at Matthew chapter 4 you'll see you have John the Baptist's condemnation of Herod who was he said it was not lawful to be living with that woman so you have John the Baptist speaking against Herod the little horn and you have the Herod the little horn casting down John the Baptist killing him by the sword and even Jesus we don't sometimes recognize this we sometimes have such a focus on the Pharisees and the Sadducees the leaders of the religious arena in first century Jerusalem and Judea that we don't sometimes recognize that Jesus warned the people not only of the Pharisees and the Sadducees Jesus warned the people of Herod as well go to Luke chapter 13 Luke chapter 13 well this is actually we'll get to the, the warning that Jesus makes this is actually where the Pharisees warned Jesus about Herod because Herod is going to set himself up against the prince. Luke chapter 13, 31, verse 31. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. So now we have Herod the Great trying to kill Jesus the baby, right? And then you have the next Herod, Herod Antipas. The rumor is from the Pharisees that Herod wants to kill Jesus. They want to kill him as an adult as well. And then you have the condemnation that Jesus gives and the warning that Jesus gives to his disciples about Herod in Mark chapter 8. So we turn back to Mark chapter 8, you'll see that Herod is lumped in with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. All of this is, of course, historical context for Daniel. Mark chapter 8, verses 14 and 15. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned, Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. See, they're all thrown together there as the leadership, all in one sort of corporate image of this little horn. These were the ones that had muscled their way into taking over God's temple. They had stolen the rights and used them for their own benefit, the Pharisees to make money, Herod to make fame and political power, and to lord it over the people. And so we have this little horn scene in Daniel chapter 8 coming to fulfillment in the first century in the New Testament. When Daniel 8:12 says that the truth that truth was thrown to the ground, it is talking about the Herodian kings in league with the religious leaders of the of the land putting Jesus Christ the incarnate truth on the cross. Later Herod Antipas persecuted the saints putting James the brother of John to death by the sword if you go to Acts chapter 12 you can read about that story and he did that to make the Jews happy and the Jewish rulers collaborated to bring about the death of many of God's saints in their great apostasy of the Jews against the Messiah and that's what we read about in the New Testament we read about them persecuting God's people all across the Roman Empire and when they got their hands on his people they threw them down to the ground and trampled on them. That's an image of persecution. Just like they persecuted Jesus, they persecuted his people. And so Daniel chapter 8 sets a context for what's going on in the New Testament. Look at Daniel chapter 8, continuing in verse 23. 
in the latter part of their reign when rebels have become completely wicked of course when is the great apostasy the great apostasy is when the Jews reject their Messiah and finally break God's covenant completely a stern faced king a master of intrigue will arise he will become very strong but not by his own power Herod of course received his authority in Judea from the Roman kings he will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does remember he rebuilt the temple he was in charge of the of the religious system he was succeeding in a political sense he will destroy the mighty men and the holy people John the Baptist Jesus Christ himself the Christians after that he will cause deceit to prosper and he will consider himself superior when they feel secure he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes yet he will be destroyed but not by human power how was the leadership destroyed in, in Judea and Jerusalem in the first century it was destroyed by the coming of the Lord in great judgment in AD 70 when the Romans working through providential means were actually became the hand of God and leveled the city removed the leadership and destroyed God's enemies and so we have this fulfillment in the New Testament of Daniel chapter 8 going back in verse 13 then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to him how long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled the vision concerned the daily sacrifice the rebellion that causes desolation and the surrender of the sanctuary and the host that we be trampled underfoot he said to me it will take 2300 evenings and mornings then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated this seems a bit bizarre but I think it will help in Hebrew if you look at this in, in the actual Hebrew evening and morning is literally in the singular so it's, it's literally it will take evening and morning 2300 then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated now because of the number there 2300 translators in English tend to put it into plural because it seems like it's 2300 days but in, in Hebrew it's actually singular and that phrase evening and morning should take us back to the very beginning of our Bibles remember the creation in Genesis 1 takes place evening and morning is a refrain that we use that we see back in Genesis chapter 1 when God creates in fact the angel calls the vision given to Daniel the vision of the evening and morning verse 23 in the latter part of their reign when rebels have become completely wicked a stern faced king and master of intrigue will arise in verse 26 the vision of the evening again it's singular in the, in the original the vision of the evening and morning that has been given you is true but seal up the vision for it concerns the distant future so the very the whole vision is called the vision of the evening and morning and if we think about where this language is coming from we should think that this is talking about a vision of the new creation because the original language the original source of this language comes from the original creation and so what we see here is a vision of the new creation and this is of course also related to worship because in the original creation specifically with the temple and the tabernacle this creation had evening and morning sacrifices and we read that from from Exodus and from Numbers the evening and morning sacrifice were what brings in the day and ends the day so we have like an evening and morning aspect in creation and aspect in worship because 
creation and worship always go together. There's always that worship aspect in creation. So, what Daniel foresees is a time when God atones for sin with a pure sacrifice and reconsecrates a new temple for His people to worship in. So, in the New Testament, we see this new temple being built in the body of Christ. And, of course, Jesus Christ is the new temple. Remember, He said, this is my body. Destroy this temple in three days and I will raise it up again. What was He talking about? His body. And he was, we started seeing Paul talking about living stones being formed together in a temple, being believers. And Jesus is the cornerstone and the capstone, the beginning and the end of this new temple. And so this forming of the new body, this new creation, is the con- reconsecration of God's temple in Jesus Christ because of his act of sacrifice. This is the new creation that Daniel looks forward to and the rebels who corrupted the worship of God would be overthrown in the end and God's dwelling place with, with man would be renewed through Jesus Christ. Now what about this 2300? 2300 evening and morning. Now I take that as a symbolic time period. The number 23 comes up in a couple of key places in Israel's history and I think there's some parallels here. We're not going to run to go see these, but I'll give you the references if you're interested in looking back to understand sort of where Daniel is getting this imagery from. You can also, you can look at Jeremiah who warned the people for 23 years before the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC. You can see that in Jeremiah 25.3. You have Jeremiah warning the people for 23 years and afterwards judgment. So we have the 2300 evening and morning afterwards, which is judgment. Also, back in 2 Kings 12, Joash, the good king, waited until 23 years after beginning his rule before commissioning commissioning the repair of the damaged temple. And that's a parallel because what's going on in Daniel chapter 8 is the foreseeing of the repairing of God's true temple in Jesus Christ. So I suspect that the parallel between this part of Israel's history, remember that Daniel is working within the context of his history. He knows this history in the Old Testament very well. He understands the symbolism and he understands the the parallels uh, both in the past and projecting into the future. Perhaps there's another explanation for the 2300. I don't take it as a literal 2300 literal days for, well, mainly for the reason this is apocalyptic imagery and apocalyptic literature. And like we see in the book of Revelation with 144,000, the symbolic number of all the saints, all of the people of God, all the 12 tribes of Israel, or the myriad of myriads of armies, it's a symbolic thing. Same thing, I believe, with this 2300 in reference to evening and morning. Verses 26. The vision of the evening and morning that has been given you is true, but seal up the vision for it concerns the distant future. Notice that when God gives a prophecy, He tells us when it will take place, the distant future. But when you get to the New Testament, what do we find in prophecy in the New Testament? It's near. This generation will not pass away. So we have this extension of Daniel into the far future, but then when we get to the New Testament, when we get to this time of fulfilling and unfolding of the 70 weeks, which we'll look at in the next chapter, we see all of these prophecies as very, very near, coming to pass in that generation. Daniel was appalled by the vision and its interpretation in verse 27. I, Daniel, was exhausted and lay ill for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business 
I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. Another parallel we have back to Daniel chapter 7 because at the end of Daniel chapter 7, Daniel was also appalled and sick and mourning and weeping, so to speak, about what he saw. And the reason here is the same reason that he was distraught at the end of chapter 7 because he saw he saw that his own people, the Jews, would be involved in this last great apostasy in covenant history. This would be greatly troubling to Daniel who loved his people to see this kind of an end. However, his vision is also glorious in a very subtle way. Notice his vision of the new creation, the vision of the evening and morning, uses the symbol of a ram for Persia and the symbol of a goat for Greece. And as I mentioned earlier, these are clean, domesticated animals rather than the unclean wild beasts that we saw in Daniel chapter 7. So in Daniel chapter 7, you have these wild animals. What are they? Lion, bear, leopard. Jews don't eat those animals. Those are unclean. Those are wild animals. And now in Daniel chapter 7, this vision of the evening and morning of the new creation, we have a ram, which is a male sheep, and we have a he-goat. In reference to who? Persia and Greece. Rams and goats were used in every major festival involved in the Jewish calendar. And so what is Daniel actually saying here about this vision of the new creation? He's envisioning a time when the ram and the goat are used inside the worship of God and the animals actually go into the Holy of Holies. Because what do the animals do in the sacrifices? They represent the people. And so what we're seeing here in a very subtle way is that Daniel foresees when Persians and Greeks become part of God's people. The Gentiles are going to become part of God's worship in the new creation. And so we have this whole vision from a completely different perspective using the animals that they were very familiar with in the sacrificial system. These now become clean animals They now become domesticated animals and the Gentiles become believers in Christ in the new creation. Thank you. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for what you've done in our past as our heritage, as your people. We thank you for the rising up and the laying low of nations that you've done. We pray that you give us eyes to see this great heritage that we have as your people. May we rejoice in the glories of of your victories that you've won in history, knowing that you continue to work on our behalf as your holy people. May we learn to return the proper response of praise and worship as we offer our own bodies as living sacrifices in your temple. We pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name who guides us and leads us. Amen.